Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. This podcast is brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tires, batteries, and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. My guest on this podcast is Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. She's an authority on longevity and generational balance. We talk about many things, including what Aviva calls four-quarter lives and the implications for the workplace and pensions of men and women staying professionally active longer and the differences and consequences between the sexes in actually living longer, much longer. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. It would do me no harm to read the Bible more often. Our language and literature are heavily infused with quotations and expressions of biblical origin. For example, Psalm 90, verse 10, will guide me and my special guest today. The poetic King James Version puts it as follows. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. That's what the good book said. Now, today we're going to address longevity, longevity in life, longevity in the workplace, and all along life's path, complexities, nuances, and blessings. And yes, I say blessings. And I speak as someone who has just clocked up three score years and 15 and a half. Aviva Wittenberg-Cox is my guest. She's a professional, an expert in this field, and many others too, as you'll hear during the course of our conversation. Her track record is truly impressive as a CEO, as a consultant, as a writer, as a thinker, as a public speaker, and as a practitioner. She's ex-Harvard, ex-INSEAD, ex-University of Toronto. She's Canadian and based in London, from where she joins me via Zoom Today, and we've collaborated professionally before, just a few years ago. I'm delighted that she's able to join me today. Welcome. Hello, Aviva. Welcome to the McKay interview. And thanks for making time for me and all our listeners out there. Great pleasure to be with you again, Michael. Aviva, I'm looking forward to our conversation very much, not least because I'm in the age category that we'll be discussing <laughs> and I'm still busy working. So here's my first question to you, just to set the scene. What does the evidence tell us about men and women staying in the workplace longer? And in the UK, for example, where you live, what is happening? What is the trend? And do you have any European data? And if you can, without taking up too much time, give us a sort of snapshot of North America and the rest of the world, Asia, wherever you have that information, please. <laughs> well... Things have changed since the Bible times <laughs> is probably a short summary. Oh, um, and three score year and 10 is no longer where we're at. Um, do. Okay. So basically, since I mean, for much of human history, what's interesting is we used to live on average till about 46 years old for most of our species, few thousand, few hundred thousand years on the planet. And really only in the last hundred years has that number dramatically risen 
And now we've gained, we've been gifted pretty well by 20th century science, an extra 30 years on average. So we're now on average around the world living towards past 80. And it is now said that half of children born today may live to be 100. And that may... That's a global statistic, is it? Generally speaking. Hmm. Yeah. And there's some country, you know, and some countries live older, you know, I'm sure that Japan is one of the oldest countries on the planet. What's happening around the world is that where countries, where rich countries have become old slowly over the last hundred years, emerging countries and much of Asia has grown old much faster. So they've super aged super fast, which is harder to adapt to, of course. And the workplace, I would say, has not yet really embraced this phenomenon of longer lives at all. Not companies and not really countries. I mean, countries are really grappling with this issue, uh, which is relatively new. I mean, the problem is our demographic pyramids have shifted everywhere from pyramids where you have a few old people and lots of young people to squares where you're basically seeing countries balancing generationally. So tell and me there are now, Yeah. Sorry, no, go on, go on, finish the point, finish that point. And there are now 46 countries around the world that are shrinking. Their populations are actually shrinking. As many so, as that. Because not only are we aging super fast, but our birth rates are falling very dramatically, especially since the year 2000, much faster than was predicted, even in the last continent that had high birth rates, which is Africa. Um, And so this is accelerating the average age phenomenon rising very quickly. I see, because that was my next question, Aviva, what the implications from a financial point of view, from a health point of view, from a business and commerce and economic point of view, of people working well into their 70s and even older. And I mean, this this will bring a smile to your face. What really is elderly? (laughs) Well, that's a very, so that's a very interesting point because nobody agrees on the definition of what old is anymore. And there are many, many definitions. So the WHO has picked 60, uh, the World Economic Forum, I think it's 65. Um, Some of the reports are coming with AARP in the United States says you're older as of 50. So pick your poison. Um, This is why I came up with the idea of four quarter lives. If we're all going to be 100, why don't we just simplify things and say, okay, we then have these four quarters. And basically what we see is the workplace is almost entirely designed for Q2, the second quarter from 25 to 50. And this new healthy phenomenon, which is the result of these longer lives and dramatic increases in health span is Q3. We didn't used to really have a Q3. We used to go from working to old age, ill health or retirement. Now we have this extra 25 years that um, the workplace hasn't quite yet integrated and adjusted to, nor have most individuals. So that's the work. And I've heard of companies, I'm sure you have as well, where, uh, you know, by 55, 58, basically, 
there's a package structured for you and you're out yep. at 55, 58, which is really a quite a sobering thought, I think, for many men and women. But tell me a little bit about the the the, 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 the really tricky aspect, I suppose, and that is the main areas of policy which will need to change as more and more seniors, and I put that word in my notes in inverted commas, as more and more seniors continue working. How will governments readjust their policies? And, and do you already see signs of this? Well, you see people in the streets in several countries manifesting over pension ages, as you've yeah. seen. There was France, but there was Russia before. Those are not alone, right? There's going to be, and governments are, uh, politicians are, are, hampered, of course, by their electoral cycles. And like aging shares with climate change, the problem of being a very long-term challenge with very short-term political cycles. And it's very hard to get elected on a platform that your pension system is bust, which most pension systems are not financially viable around the world. And that's in the rich world. So the emerging markets with far less pension systems even established are going to be even more challenged. So we have some huge fiscal issues, big political issues. Um, this issue of aging is completely transversal, like climate change. It will affect every career, every couple, every company, and every country. And then it's just a, a question of degree, how much and how fast. And that you can get quite quickly by looking at the combination of life expectancy and fertility rate in a different country. Um, and the leading companies, there are a few, are jumping on to the trillion dollar economy, you know, longevity economy opportunity. Um, far fewer perhaps harnessing the talent explosion of all these older, wiser, healthier people. How do you keep them on board? How do you retain them and engage them well into their 60s and 70s? That's a new challenge that um, gonna, haven't yet quite. We're going to come to that, uh, Aviva. Before we leave this whole area of government policy, with your, your studies, your writings, your insights, can you give me and the listeners some sense of countries where they're beginning to move? despite the difficulties, in the right direction in terms of trying to change, in a way, this, this sort of monolith that's moving. It's like a battleship moving slowly. Give us some insights into what's really going on in your experience. Well, there's uh, the actuaries and the insurance companies are the ones to look at. They're way yeah. ahead of us because, one, they're sitting staring at these data storm coming their way, and they know that the challenges especially economic and fiscal are enormous. And so they have been adjusting for quite some time. You will see that in most countries, not most countries, most rich countries, yes. the retirement age has been programmed to increase automatically. And increasingly what the smart countries are doing are linking the increase in retirement ages to the increase in life expectancy of their populations, which has this also is happening. Been, this is happening. Yes, and this is happening in some countries. So some the government. Netherlands, um, Japan is obviously an interesting example as its place in the world is it has been the oldest country um, until now. It's way ahead on its curves. They have done some rather draconian policy moves, for example, forcing people to retire 
at retirement age from companies, but then also insisting that they renegotiate, they re-enter the workforce on a new contract at a new pay scale in an obligatory way. It's not a choice. So they have to work. They have to stay engaged. Does your research give you an indication of how this has been received by these really relatively experienced and older working people? How do they react when governments do that? Well, it depends, I think, how the companies that they work for implement it. Some companies have implemented quite well and put their seniors into very desirable mentoring roles, fostering intergenerational teams, bringing their experience and knowledge to bear. That's a very motivating way of doing it. Others um, have been forced into very uninteresting rote jobs where it becomes deeply unpopular. Um, So I think you will see a lot of both ends of the positive-negative spectrum in almost everything to do with this topic. I see. Let me remind my our listeners that my guest today is Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, the well-known authority on gender and generational balance. She's talking to me from London, and we're discussing longevity and the implications for many of us of living and working longer. Aviva, let's just turn our attention for a brief moment to younger people. What are the implications in your experience for the younger ones coming into the workplace as they interact with work colleagues the age of their grandparents, let alone their parents? That's interesting. I was just discussing intergenerational issues on an earlier uh, conversation today. And, you know, the media would love us to be more in conflict than I think we are. Um, Most boomers I know get along extraordinarily well with their younger colleagues and their children. There's less generational gaps today than there were for our parents or our grandparents' generation. We wear the same clothes, we wear the same sneakers, we listen to the same music. They love our rock and roll bands. I mean, it's (laughs) really the differences between generations, I think. Age is no longer as defining a characteristic as it used to be. I think we are moving towards, you know how everybody's talking about gender fluidity. I think we're increasingly gonna be talking about generational fluidity where we're all going to be mixed and matched for different motivations and work patterns, but not just because of our age. No, that's interesting you say that because it's true. I mean, you know, when I was a youngster, you could tell a daughter from a mother by the clothes they wore. But now you see two women, even the even the men walking down the road and you can't tell which is the dad and which is the son or which is the daughter and which is the mom. And you and I mean, you know, you look at a 60 or 70 year old and you would never guess that they are that age. It that's seems- right. That's right. Um, That's a right. complete mirage. So, no, but let's let, let's just push that age group a little bit further up, and let's come to the implications for that big middle age group. Let's say, roughly speaking, thirty-five to fifty-five. Will their career prospects be enhanced or blighted by having a growing number of oldies in and around the workplace? Now, I'm not looking for conflict, but I'm just well, I'm just interested to hear what your experience has been. I think on the contrary, what's very interesting to me is that if we can get companies to realize the talent they have on their books, given the demographic curves we're looking at, the short there's going to be a shortage of talent on the market. There aren't enough young people moving into a lot of uh, companies and jobs. So talent wars are reappearing because of the age demographics. 
in that case, the issue, I think, which right now we're seeing companies being very ageist and trying to nudge people out after 50, will transform over the next decade to companies desperately trying to retain and engage their 50 plus workforces because there aren't enough young people coming in to balance it out. And the knowledge that the older segment carries is far too valuable. And so I think the gift to people in what I call Q2, that 25 to 50 zone, is they're gonna have a lot more time to do different things in their life. And they may be able to relax a little bit in Q2, which is usually a very heavy time of making families and having children and balancing with work. Perhaps we can spread these things out now over more decades than we used to. Would I, would, would I be missing the point or unfair to say that that burden, rightly or wrongly, mainly wrongly, falls more heavily on women of that childbearing age than men uh, who are married or partners with the women of that childbearing age, from a career point of view, I mean, and child rearing. Yeah, I mean, I think the evolution of gender roles is yeah. underway, but I think certainly from, you know, centuries, women are still primed to prioritize in their 30s and 40s, you know, taking care of others, coupling, childbearing, and career is in there, but it's usually an imp almost impossible juggling act. Yeah. I think men are primed and socialized to, you know, be breadwinners and work and have a status and identity turned around career. I think that flips over 50, very interestingly. And I think then men are kind of tired and look forward to <laughs> retirement slowing down at slightly different pace. Whereas I think a lot of women are newly freed from their caring roles and look forward to taking off a little bit into uh, dimensions. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I can understand that, but I had a hectic corporate career for 25 years. And I, yeah, I did feel tired when that was over because I was traveling all the time. But I just wanted to uh, use a funny old expression, teaching an old dog new tricks. Uh, we're all familiar with that expression, but I know of at least one significant place of higher education, the University of St. Gallen here in Switzerland, that has a well-structured academic program which deals with the growing phenomenon of post-career further education for later life. In your experience, Aviva, um, what skills are needed and are high-level institutions recognizing this change and doing anything about it in their curricula? Well, since I just went off to school at 60 to do the equivalent program at Harvard called the really? Advanced Leadership Initiative uh, for a year, I think, yeah, again, they're just starting. Harvard was the first to offer these kinds of programs, but now a dozen universities around the world, including Oxford, St. Gallen, um, Queens in Canada, and um, Stanford, of course, in the US, are all now starting to address and create programs designed to help midlifers transition into the second half of their careers. And I think that's a fabulous phenomenon. I'm studying it with great interest. And I think the skills, um, it doesn't so much require new skills as a simple belief in the fact that you're not done yet, that the dominant model of yesterday no longer applies to you, even if a lot of your peer group still believes that um, you retire in your 60s. I think that's been obsolete for some time. Good. Aviva, don't take me as a cynic. I'm not a cynic. 
Um, but I have a healthy scepticism. Isn't this, isn't this really all just a first world rich countries problem, though? I mean, I wouldn't want to diminish the debate we're having, but the better off have better diets, better health care, and so live longer. But tell us a bit more. You touched on it earlier, but tell us a bit more about what's happening in the, the so-called global south regarding longevity and the implications. Interestingly, longevity is going up everywhere. This is not a rich world phenomenon. Um, life expectancy has been gradually increasing everywhere around the globe. Um, as again, science, healthcare has improved, even if it's improved less in uh, lower and middle income countries, it's still been improving quite dramatically over the last 20 years. And the other side of that is birth rates have been falling in all these countries, um, which leaves a little bit more focus on fewer children. So you take care of them better, there's more money invested in them, and they get better care, which starts them off on that journey of equivalently longer lives. What's the challenge in lower and middle income countries is the system and the pension systems and the care systems, elder care, to take care of these older people, which will be growing in increasing numbers. There are 1 billion older people in the world today. There will be 2 billion. We're going to double that number by 2050. And by 2050. That we're not ready for. Wow. I've got a couple of questions which I want to just put together here because you've already touched on four quarter lives, your expression. But it's too important a phrase just to let go. Let's go back and look at it again. Explain a little bit more about particularly Q3 and Q4. But also I want to join that question with one about the sexes or the genders in dealing with longevity. On the few occasions that I visit care homes for the elderly to see friends, it's clear to me that they are mainly full of elderly women. Their husbands have all died. No doubt there's much anecdotal evidence of that. I mean, I see it with my own eyes. I'm sure you have. But what about the hard data? Do women do better than men in old age? And what enables and what hinders success for the men and for the women? So um, let me start with my quarters and then I'll yeah. move on to this gender question, which you are you are not dreaming. This is absolutely statistically proven. So quarters first is this idea of four quarters is just a bit of a wink to the corporate world and its um, devotion to quarter <laughs> quarterly reports and performance. Okay. I thought it was an easy metaphor yes. for, okay, what if we start analyzing and evaluating our lives by quarter? How is your Q2, my Michael, um, yeah. is language we can start to understand. So Q, I metaphorize each of these quarters seems to me to be less about intergenerational issues than simply we go through similar phases of life as adults. And there's a natural evolution to what needs to get done in each quarter. So in Q1, most of us grow and learn and are founded in a family. In Q2, most of us have to found professional and public identities, egos, families, careers, all that work that goes on in Q2 with a bit of a gender difference we spoke about. I think women are programmed slightly more towards the relationships, men slightly more towards the work aspects. Q3, uh, so I call Q2 achieving. Q3 
one is growing q2 is achieving yeah. q3 i call becoming. becoming i think that's when people begin to really become who they fundamentally are yes. and have developed into being uh, it's more you're you're less pressured by the culture family and country you've grown up in you're more intrinsically motivated you tend to evolve and start yearning for new things that speak more truly to your deeper nature this is a huge opportunity for those able to seize it a bit of a a bit of a trap if you're stuck in a place that doesn't serve you and Q4 is the new old, older age, which is 75 to 100, um, which is also seeing an increase in health span. And I call that quarter harvesting. Basically, you reap what you've sown um, and gather the health, physical, relational benefits or problems of your entire life. What's called the exposome, which it's a good, is basically... It's a good word. I like that word, yeah. Yeah, everything you've been exposed to will basically show up in Q4. Yeah. So perhaps just back to your question then about um, genders and why there's so many old women in old age. Yeah. For, for a number of reasons, a terrible statistic, you'll like this top line, 80% of men die married and 80% of women die single. Really? Die alone. Why? Really? Yeah. yeah. Why? It's very natural when you do the math, right? <laughs> Women tend to marry old, men older than them on average, mm. about two to four years older, depending yeah. on the country. Yes. Women then live longer than men statistically, yeah. five years older um, around the world yeah. on average. So you combine those two realities means that basically women are living with men who are older, will die younger, and they will live about on average seven years longer um, than their partners, which means, yeah, their husbands die first and they are left alone. They took care of their husbands until their end generally, and who will then take care of the women who are left usually alone again, our systems aren't designed that way. Our pensions are badly designed. There's a huge gender pension gap around the world, 25% on average, 40% in the UK. I won't go on, but um, this is an issue we've got to address. No, 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 but I, I wasn't, I, I didn't mean to, to stop you there. But, but when you say there's, I mean, the, the way you emphasize huge, government surely must recognize that. Are they doing anything about it? This gap you talk about? <sighs> it's, like a lot of workplace issues, you know, this is, there's a problem of systemic design in a lot of places that is gendered. And there, once it's gendered, the whole many of our systems were designed by men for men in an era when they had wives who did not work. Yeah. We haven't always adjusted to the reality of two income couples in a world where most everybody works. Um, and so the heritage of pension systems, for example, that are separate, that each person has their own individual pension, even though they're in a couple with one spouse who usually stays in work uninterrupted and the other who drops in and out in function of the caring roles that the family requires and is then penalized because the design of the system was never designed for families, it was designed for individuals. Um, and you have some inheritance that falls onto the, you know, the surviving spouse's lap, but it's not usually enough. And the women's careers that are intermittent often in many countries 
adds to the gender pension gap. So who's looking at this? Australia is the country that actually is doing some innovative work on redesigning right. pensions to be more family inclusive and less completely individualized. And their whole superannuation system is very interesting. But yeah, I mean, if if you see some of the gender gap in knowledge, I don't think anybody really outside of the insurance company is hugely aware of this. We've been working on the gender pay gap for the yes, last I mean, 25 years. Yes. We're going to be working on the gender pension gap for the next 20 well, It's good years. that we highlight that, even in this uh, very brief uh, conversation, because I'm sure people uh, really have not studied uh, it, and it's clearly there's a lot more work to be done and then to be recognized. I've got something else. And pensions, as soon as you say the word pension, it's so boring and people yes. really don't want to look yes. at this and everybody yes. hates to talk about it. Absolutely. And couples really don't want to look at it. And financial advisors are not educated on gender differences. Yes. There's a mountain of stuff. So my recommendation to any any lady listening is get over the boredom, dig out your pensions <laughs> pension plan Absolutely. and just check those numbers with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Got a couple more questions before we close, Aviva, and this one won't surprise you. I think we talked about it a little bit before we, we had this radio conversation. What, if any, are the implications of the trend in many developed countries for couples to begin having children later and later, if they have children at all? We touched on it earlier. Well, I mean, within my own life experience, my wife and I started our family in our late 20s. Where some of our children, start, our own children, started 10 years later than we did. And thank God I'm still around and young enough at my age to enjoy my own grandchildren. But that may not be the case in years to come if children, our children have their children later and later, uh, even if people live longer and longer. I mean, what's your view on that? So I think there's there's a lag to change, right? And I think you're you're describing something that I, I think might be a momentary lag and time may prove me right or wrong, but let me explain. So, um, the real issue is people are having fewer and fewer babies. So yes. Co South Korea is the world record now on the lowest birth rates around the world. It's down below one when it's 0.78, when replacement ratio, just to keep populations stable, is 2.1. So most couples surveyed around the world would like two children. In many places, they can't afford it. In Asia, babies are becoming a luxury item. It's crazy, right? So how do we encourage and help people have the children that they might desire is going to become a big issue. The other is, I think, a result also of shifting gender roles and a bit of a lag in women have flooded with delight into work and financial independence. Men have moved into the home and childcare and elder care with slightly less appetite, um, which creates this challenge in a lot of contemporary two-income couples of whether or not the man is up to the co-parenting challenge. And if not, does the woman really want to take it on herself and do the bulk of the work. So I think that's having a huge impact on just the readiness of couples to have children and why birth rates are falling. They're falling particularly fast in cultures that are, I would say, the least gender balanced. Um, and you can see that in Japan and South Korea, where the pretty hard to convince the men to come home early from their workaholic jobs to do their share of childcare, right? 
I saw, I heard a news report just the last few days about a new cabinet of government in Japan where all the cabinet members are men. There's not one woman around the circle. And, uh, the, it's the, not going to the help their birth thing. rates. Hmm? That's not going to help their birth rates. No, no, exactly, exactly. I usually, now, I usually now say that women are voting with their wombs. <laughs> yes. And in countries that don't have policies to enable you know, child care, elder care, dual career tax systems that don't uh, penalize the second income, pension systems that are designed for dual career couples. If you don't put those kind of policy shifts into place, you are unlikely to solve your demographic declines. So you, you've led in very well into my last question, and in a way, it's in a, by implication, it's a huge intray on many of these issues that you're talking about, predicting the futures of Mugs game, Aviva. But are there any trends, any trends, which have been manifest for some time and which, in your opinion, are likely to provide solid evidence of change in the next, say, three to five years or even longer, if we're taking the long view on that, just just to give us some sense of, I won't say optimism, but some sense of, of the horizon that's beckoning us, no matter what age we are. Listen, I think the, the what's interesting to me is this issue of age is reminds me almost exactly of where we were on gender issues 25 years ago. A massive shift in the data, you can see it. It's like this iceberg moving towards us. Um, and only a few people jumping on the bandwagon early. But I think post-COVID and the loss of human life, particularly elder life, that was visible, suddenly visible worldwide, has really cottoned people onto this topic. Post-pandemic, you can see that the attention, the media attention on demographics and demographic shifts has just exploded. Um, and the reality is that we are now going to have this be probably the number two issue on our entrees right after climate change, because it will have the most dramatic impact on everybody, every company, every country, and every career of all of our listeners. It's very sobering what you said, Aviva. I really found it absolutely absorbing listening to what you had to tell me, and I'm sure the listeners will feel the same way. Thanks for explaining everything so carefully and so painstakingly, um, precisely, because it's important that we really understand this, this issue. And it's, as you say, slow moving and complex, both at the same time. My guest today has been Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, the prominent authority on matters relating to longevity, generational and gender balance. Thanks again, Aviva, for giving me the time. My great pleasure, Michael, to your Q3. Thanks for listening to the McKay Interview podcast, brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tires, batteries, and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. And you can find more podcasts on Anchor FM. Just Google McKay interview Anchor FM. Thanks again for listening.